This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 2, The Prophets in Literary Perspective. You'll remember in the last lecture we took an historical perspective on prophecy, asking what kind of terminology the Bible uses to describe prophets, looking at the characteristics of their tradition, the developments and the continuities, and then finally we zeroed in on the idea that the prophets were a, a particular function within the life of Israel. They played a particular role, that of an emissary between Yahweh the great suzerain and his vassal kings and the people of their kingdoms, namely Israel. Here, in Lecture 2, we're going to take a slightly different approach to prophecy. We're going to ask another overview question, but instead of asking about the historical people, the historical persons whom we call prophets and their traditions, their lives, their lives and their practices, we're going to be asking, what about their material? That is, the things that they spoke or the things that they wrote. And so we'll begin by focusing first on the prophetic material. Roman numeral 1, letter A, the writing prophets. Figure 2.1 indicates to us that there are many prophets mentioned in the Old Testament. And there are examples of prophets in the Old Testament who had independent records, I'm sure, of oracles that are not known to us anymore. Um, there are indications of this because, as you see in 2 Chronicles 9, verse 29, some prophets wrote books, and the Bible mentions these, for instance, the book of Nathan, the prophet, but their books are lost. So there probably were other prophets that wrote things down, and their books were gone. We don't have them anymore. But a few of all these many prophets that are mentioned in the Old Testament, a few of them had their collection, there were collections made of their works, of their oracles, of their stories about them, and, those, and their speeches, and their prayers, and those sorts of things. And these have become part of our canon that we call Isaiah through Malachi. Now, these are our primary focus as we go into this course. So, for example, we're not going to be concentrating on how prophets like Shemaiah and 2 Chronicles 12 or Nathan uh, in the book of Samuel, how these prophets served and what they did. Our primary concern is going to be on the writing prophets. As you think about that, however, we need to think about the categories of writing prophets. And this brings us to Roman numeral 1, letter B, the categories of prophets. Now, these are categories that refer to the written prophets, that is, the books of prophets. Some, in, in the Hebrew Bible, we should realize that there are several sections of the Bible that come under the rubric of prophet. One is the so-called former prophets, and then the latter prophets. The latter prophets divide between the major and the minor, and then we have even some of some books that we would consider prophetic that are that are found in the Ketuvim or the writings of the Old Testament, not designated prophet. The former, the former prophets cover the books that we usually designate as the historical books, though there are some exceptions because the order of books in the Hebrew Bible are slightly is slightly different than our order. The latter prophets then break down between the major, and that would be the big prophets, the big books that we know like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets especially. We have some other books, however, that we consider 
prophetic that are found in that third section of the Hebrew Bible, the Ketuvim. And, but at any rate, what we have here in the Bible of, that we hold is a set of books that do not correspond quite directly to what the Hebrew Bible calls the prophetic books. We can think of the prophets in these three main categories as you think about them in the order in which they appear in our Bibles. We can think of pre-exilic writing prophets, and there you have a list of them. Notice, of course, that Joel and is a debatable date. Um, the exilic prophets, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the post-exilic writing prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. There are other prophets in each of these periods, as we saw in the previous lecture, but these prophets were the ones that wrote. So as we go through this course, we'll be trying to go through the prophets in these three categories, pre-exilic writing prophets, exilic writing prophets, and post-exilic writing prophets, rather than using the categories of the Hebrew Bible. This brings us then to Roman numeral two, prophetic genre, prophetic genre. The first thing we need to consider as we start thinking about the literature of the prophets is how they wrote. What were the genres they used? What was the style they used? What, what forms did they use? And Roman numeral, Roman numeral two, letter A, poetry and prose, raises the question that, raises a question that we must all deal with, and that is, were the prophets writing in prose or were they writing in poetry? Figure 2.3 makes an important point, and that is that the distinction between poetry and prose is not very precise. Poetry and prose really are on a continuum. They're not absolutely distinct. You can think, obviously, of certain, pa certain passages in the Bible that are prosaic or plain writing. You can also think of others that are obviously poetry. But then you have everything in the middle, from one end to the other, poetic prose and prosaic poetry. These are not absolutely distinct, but a continuum. And the thing that makes poetry as opposed to prose is the question of the density of structure the frequency of figures of speech and the reliance on imagery in the text. And the less you have of these three characteristics, the more prosaic a, te a text tends to be. The more you have of these three characteristics, the more poetic it tends to be. You can compare, for example, the, the narrative or prosaic account of Deborah's fighting in Judges chapter 4 with the poetic account of Judges chapter 5, if you want a good example of how you can have an historical event described through prose and then have it re-described in poetry. There you can begin to see the difference in and note the density of structure that's characteristic of Judges chapter 5, and the reliance on figures of speech and the reliance on imagery, how, how much more concentrated those things are in poetry than they are in prose. Now what this tells us is that we cannot really be absolutely dogmatic when we start designating certain parts of the prophetic materials as prosaic or poetic. And we have to be a little bit flexible in the way that we talk about such things. So this raises the figure 2.4 and the question of the distribution of prose and poetry in the prophetic books. And what I've done is to sort of sketch this out in a way that is somewhat subjective in the judgment here, but nevertheless I think fairly accurate, and that is which books have more prose that we call prophetic and which ones have more poetry? And you can line them up and you can see how, how they work out. Some are very well mixed. Jeremiah, for example, and Isaiah are a fair mixture of prose and poetry. And you, 
I hope you know this, but you can tell by looking at modern English translations what portions of the prophetic books the editors of these books felt were poetry and which parts they thought were prose. Prose in modern English Bibles is written out in sort of continuous paragraph fashion. Poetry in modern English Bibles is written out with poetic scansion, that is with short lines that are indented. You can go to any prophetic book, for example Isaiah, and you can flip through and see that page after page you will have prose, but then embedded within it you'll have sections of poetry that are set off by the peculiar uh, editorial scansion that they uh, set up in the English, modern English Bibles. Unfortunately, the King James Bible does not distinguish in its format between prose and poetry. Now this raises a very important issue for us. If it is true that much of the prophetic material is poetry, we must begin to read it as poetry. I'm afraid that most evangelicals haven't a clue first that there is poetical material in the Bible, uh, much less in the prophets, and then when they even know that, they don't know what to do with it. So we're going to be working hard in this class to try to illustrate how the poetic character of the prophetic writing uh, will influence and enhance our understanding of it. You must not read poetry as a newspaper. You must not read poetry as prose. And when you're dealing with prophetic poetry, you must be very sensitive to the genre considerations. This brings us then to uh, Roman numeral 2, letter B. The types of records that prophets give us. Figure 2.5 follows the basic categories that Klaus Westermann gives us in the basic forms of prophetic speech. In recent years, these categories have been disputed, but they hold, they hold for the most part, as true of the prophetic materials. It's useful and helpful to think of the prophetic books as containing three major kinds of records. One, historical accounts. Two, prophetic speeches. And three, the prophet's utterances to God. Historical accounts. Let's think about these for just a moment. And example. a good example of this is found in Amos chapter 7, is being confronted because his ministry is so negative about the king. And in chapter 7, verse 10, we read this account. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will go into exile away from their native land. A bit of poetry there. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Notice he calls him a seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and, your and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the, a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd and I also took care of sycamore trees. What he's saying there is, I'm not a professional prophet. You don't pay me. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. What is this? This is an account, an historical account, where the, where the book of Amos is telling us an important event. It's summarizing an important event that took place in Amos' life. Usually, such historical accounts are given to us in prose, and they are designed to give historical setting to the book 
and they are also designed to teach a lesson indirectly in this book. I'm personally convinced that one of the main reasons why this particular story is stuck here in the middle of the book of Amos is to indicate that Amos was not self-seeking or self-serving as he offered his prophecies against the north. Um, after all, he was from the south and traveling up north, there was probably suspicions as to why he was doing what he was doing. And I think in this story, Amos is defending his attitude toward the people and toward his job. Now, besides historical accounts, which occur all over the place in the prophetic materials, you also have prophetic speeches. Now, this is the bulk of the prophetic work, speeches that the prophets gave to people. Most of the other portions, for example, of the book of Amos involve prophecies or speeches that he gave to people at different places and different times. These are announcements to listeners, and they were designed to preserve the actual words of the prophets' oracles. They were designed, these accounts were designed to convey the prophetic message of the prophet. Then we come to the third big, big category of prophetic record, and that would be the prophet's utterances to God. These would be prayers or accounts of prayers. If you think, for example, of Amos in the book of Amos, there are three what are often called hymn fragments in the book of Amos, Amos 4:13, 5, 8, and 9, and 9, 5, and 6. And these hymn fragments represent various praise and laments and petitions that often come into the prophetic work. You'll find prophets breaking out in adoration to God and praise to God. You'll find them lamenting to God. You'll find them praying to God, asking for things. These utterances to God are usually in poetry, and they are designed to reveal the prophet's inner life, to praise God and to appeal to God um, as people are reading the book. And so we find that there are three major types of records within the prophetic books. First, the historical accounts, and then prophetic speeches, and then utterances to God. Now this brings us then to letter Roman numeral 2, letter C. What we're going to do now is to look at each of these three categories in a little more detail. First, let's take a look at the types of historical accounts that we find in the books of prophets. Figure 2.6, types of accounts. In a word, you have two kinds of historical accounts in prophetic books, those that are autobiographical and those that are biographical. It's quite fascinating, really, thinking again of, of the book of Amos as an example. Amos chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share. Notice that it's in the first person. It's autobiographical. That is to say, Amos is telling the story of what happened to him as he received the visions of the locust, the fire, and the plumb line. This is quite interesting because you have other situations where you have uh, first-person autobiographical accounts as well, and you can look up the references here. But you also find, fascinatingly, in the very same books often, where you have an autobiographical section, you'll have a biographical section. That is, you'll have something written in the third person. For example, Amos chapter 7, verse 1 is autobiographical, as we've already seen. But if you go down to verse 10, suddenly it becomes third person. Then Amaziah, the, king, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy. And then it goes on and talks about how Amos answered, verse 14. Amos answered Amaziah, 
rather than being autobiographical, suddenly in the very same chapter we switched over to a biographical section. Now this, of course, should alert us to a possibility. Mind you, I just said a possibility because such things are somewhat speculative. But normally when you think of a book containing autobiographical portions and then biographical portions, that is first person sections and third person sections, you may have the impression that you have one section that may have come directly ver word for word from the author or from the prophet himself and then uh, the third person sections may have actually been written by someone else, say an eyewitness or a student of the prophet, much like Baruch was a scribe or student of Jeremiah. And this is quite feasible that what we find in the books of prophets are not just things that were actually written down by the hands of prophets them the prophets themselves, but collections of their works, some of them entering into the book as autobiographical, as in the case of Amos chapter 7, verse 1 and following, but then other portions being summarized in the third person by the student or by the secretary of the prophet as, for instance, Amos chapter 7, verse 10 and following. And so the complexity of this autobiographical-biographical disparity does alert us to the fact that prophets usually did not just sit down and write a whole book in one setting that their books represent a bit of history of composition, that is a development of using sources and those sorts of things, um, ever so small by comparison to critical approaches, but nevertheless we must be alert to the fact that there probably was more going on than just, for example, Amos sitting down one day and deciding to write a book. He probably did write much of the book himself and certainly the words that are, that are attributed to him in the book of Amos are his words. But to say that all the sections had to be written by the very hand of Amos would go beyond the evidence of the books themselves, to be specific, the mixture of biographical and autobiographical accounts. This brings us then to Roman numeral 2, letter D, the types of speeches. You'll recall that in the prophetic material there are accounts, historical accounts, then there are the prophet's speeches and the prophet's utterances to God. We're now on the second major kind of material we find in the prophetic books, the types of speeches. If you look at figure 2.7, which is out of order in our syllabus because for the sake of space, it's on page 14, the types of speeches um, range from very negative to very positive. We may speak of the negative speeches as those that bring curses on the people and the positive speeches as those that bring um, blessing to the people. Oracles of judgment we'll speak of as being over on the negative side, on the cursing side. Of course, these have a lot of mixing and variations among them, and also we'll speak of oracles of woe. But then on the other extreme, we'll speak of the category of oracles of salvation, which of course again have mixing and variations. But then in the middle, there will be such things as the oracles of judgment and salvation mixed together and a call to repentance. Now, these are just samples of the various kinds of prophetic speeches there are in the Bible, but they represent some of the major categories. It's very important to understand that when the prophets spoke, they did not speak at random. Instead, they gave their speeches to people according to rather elastic but at the same time well-defined categories or types of speech. And as we begin to think about these various types of speeches, it's good to get some broad parameters, some broad categories in terms of which we may think as we approach the prophetic books because without these kinds of 
categories in mind, you people tend to read through the prophetic books just reading one verse after another, after another, after another. But when you begin to see that the speeches take certain forms, then you can begin to uh, section off various speeches from each other and understand better what the prophets were trying to communicate. So let's look at the first type or major type of speech, and that would be the judgment oracle or oracle of judgment. Looking now at figure 2.8, what I'm suggesting to you in the figure 2.8 is that the oracle of judgment was a fairly standard way in which prophets spoke their words from God to his people. And as the top of figure 2.8 illustrates, there are many such oracles and they all tend to follow a basic pattern of some kind of introduction, then an accusation, maybe a development of the accusation, then the messenger formula, which is something on lines of therefore, or thus says the Lord, or the Lord has sworn, and then an intervention by God and the results of the intervention. Now you can think of that as a rather complicated way of looking at judgment oracles. A, more, a simpler way of doing it is simply to say you have usually an introduction, then an accusation, and a sentencing. Think for just a moment of the example uh, here on the page from Amos chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. This is a very simple judgment oracle. It starts off with an introduction. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are in the mountains of Samaria, and then you find an accusation who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. Then you have what is often called the messenger formula. The Lord has sworn by his holiness, followed by the announcement of the sentence or the sentencing. The Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. This idea of an introduction, an accusation, and then a sentence is the basic notion behind oracles of judgment. You'll find sometimes you just get the sentence, sometimes you just get the accusation, sometimes you don't have an introduction at all. But generally speaking, you have all three parts. Let's take another example um, found down at the bottom of figure 2.8. Let's say the individual judgment oracle in Amos chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 of Amos 7, Now then, hear the word of the Lord. That's the introduction. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of Isaac. That's the accusation. 17, therefore, this is what the Lord says. There's the prophetic formula or the messenger formula, and now here comes the sentencing. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will certainly go into exile away from their native land. So you can see in a very simple example here the, the fundamental part, parts of a judgment oracle, an introduction, an accusation, a sentencing. These come to net individuals, and they also come to whole nations, as figure 2.8 illustrates. Referring back now to uh, figure 2.7, you can see over on the negative side of the types of speeches that prophets give are also what are called oracles of woe. Oracles of woe are very closely associated with the oracles of judgment. The basic difference, they begin with the word woe. As you see on these examples, Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? Here's an accusation introduced by the word woe. Uh, Hebrew hoi. 
Then you get the messenger formula often and then followed by ascendancing as in Amos 5. That day will not be darkness, will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, and so on the passage goes. So you can look at many different passages of woe. Uh, again, the basic characteristic being that of negative message is an accusation and a sentence of judgment that is introduced by the word woe. Now referring back again to figure 2.7, you can see that we also have a number of oracles that sort of fall in the middle. Maybe they're mixtures of judgment and salvation, words of hope as well as words of judgment, or a call to repentance. And I give some examples of these in figure 2.10. Isaiah 58, 1 through 12 is a well-known salvation judgment oracle, and you can look at that where a salvation judgment oracle offers deliverance for some people but then judgment for others, usually depending on what they do or how they respond to the oracle that's being given. These are mixed messages. Another one would be um, the call to repentance, where you have judgment is coming, and so what people should do is repent so that they can avoid the judgment. Figure 2.10 then shows us the kind of mixed or in-between sorts of um, oracles that come along. We also find in Figure 2.11 the the very famous, well-known lawsuit oracle. Now this is very similar to a judgment oracle. Sometimes they're mixed between salvation and judgment, but usually they're more on the negative side. Called the lawsuit or called the reeve. And this is a very complicated lawsuit um, or complicated form. The difference between a lawsuit and an oracle of judgment is difficult to discern. Usually, the best way to put it is this, usually a lawsuit will have much more legal terminology in it than will a judgment oracle. Uh, a judgment oracle is legal in its basic form. You can see that when you speak in terms of there being a, an accusation and then a sentencing. But a, a lawsuit will involve words like a courtroom, of the courtroom like witnesses or the summoning of the judge or God sitting on his throne making judgment among the various uh, creatures of heaven and among the nations, things like that. So you get some technicalities in there, some technical court terminology. And also you often find the Hebrew word reeve or lawsuit in the actual text themselves. Micah chapter 6, I suppose, is one of the more, more famous uh, reeves or lawsuits. It has uh, all the various parts, as you can imagine, uh, listed off here in figure 211. You have a summons to the court in, in Micah chapter 6, verse 1. God then displays his benevolences and talks about all the good things he had done for Israel. And yet, in verses 6 through 8, they did not respond as they ought to have responded. And so you get accusations and sentencing along with witnesses in the oracle. Take a look at Micah chapter 6 sometime and you'll be able to see the various parts as we've outlined them here in figure 2.11. As we go through the prophetic books, you're going to see these kinds of lawsuits appear again and again in various parts of the prophets. This brings us then to figure 2.12, which is the oracle of salvation. And as figure 2.7 illustrates, these are the positive blessing oracles. And the basic, um, the basic elements of an oracle of salvation, figure 212, are the introduction, a declaration by God that he's going to do something, and then future promises offered by God. Jeremiah 35, verses 18 through 19, offer a good example of a, an oracle of salvation. 
Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. There's the introduction. Here is, You have obeyed the command of your forefather Jonadab and have followed all his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Now here is the future promise. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jonadab, son of Rechab, will, all, will never fail to have a man serve me. Um, so you see the basic idea here is that an oracle of salvation, while it doesn't always have to have this introduction, declaration, future promise order, it often will. But if it doesn't, it's simply that it focuses on the positive, that God says, I'm going to bless my people. He offers, he gives them promises about things that are going to come toward them in the future. Um, these also take place for the individual and for the nation. Figure 2.13 is a, gives a list of some other kinds of prophetic speeches that often take place in the prophets. We won't go into them in much detail here, but simply to say the disputation form. The disputation form is um, record of the prophet arguing with other prophets, disagreeing with them. Uh, sadly, sometimes we don't know exactly whether we are involved in a disputation series or not because we only hear one side of the conversation. But sometimes you actually hear the prophet quoting the other person and then coming back and giving his opinion of what they've said. You also find that parables are used extensively by the prophets. Jesus did not invent parables. He drew, the parab from, he drew out the parabolic method from the prophets. And then finally, we have what's called the prophetic Torah, which is sort of a catechetical teaching role that the prophet had, giving instruction, giving information to people, and you can see the examples there in figure 2.13. So we've talked then about the types of accounts, historical accounts, autobiographical, biographical, and now the types of speeches that the prophets made. And this brings us to the third category, Roman numeral 2, letter E, the types of utterances to God. Figure 214 tells us the kind of basic utterances that, that prophets offered to God. They range as they gave him laments as well as praise. Their words to their God ranged to the full range that you find within the Psalms, from the very negative to the very positive. For example, Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 is a lament. There we read, Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is the virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is a lament that the prophet offers to God. On the other hand, you find praise offered to God within the prophetic materials also. Um, Amos chapter 4 and verse 13 is an example of this. He who forms the winds, the mountains creates the wind and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. This is nothing less than a word of declar declar declarative praise to God for his astounding qualities. And so we see then that as we read through the prophets, we need to become very conscious of their genre, that they are often poetry, but even beyond that, within the poetry prose uh, spectrum, we have three main kinds of materials. We have uh, accounts that are biographical and autobiographical, speeches that range from very negative all the way over to positive, and utterances to God that range from lament to praise. As we continue to think about the prophets in literary perspective, we come to, Ro to Roman numeral three, 
prophetic authorship? We must ask at this, quest, at this point in our lecture, um, exactly what do we mean when we say that the prophets were writing prophets? And to begin with, we have to make a distinction between proclamation and inscripturation, Roman numeral 3a. Figure 215 illustrates what we're talking about here. You have the historical reality of a prophet who makes a proclamation. This is, for example, in the case of Amos, Amos the man who lived in Israel, Amos, or worked in Israel. Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, makes it very plain that his prophetic ministry, his speaking, took place in the northern kingdom. Now, this is the kind of focus that is usually taken up in what critics call form criticism. Form critics look at the prophetic materials and ask, what were the prophets doing? Where were they in the culture? What was their institutional situation as they gave certain speeches and the like? And it's perfectly legitimate to ask those kinds of questions about the prophetic criticism, which is another sort of critical approach to the Bible, um, focuses in the prophetic materials on how the various proclamations of the prophets were arranged and put together and framed and given titles and the like and put into the book. Then we find that literary canonical criticism and rhetorical criticism focus more on the final composition of the book. And we certainly can make a big distinction between the proclamation that the prophets made and the inscripturation of the prophetic material. As in the case of Amos, just taking that as an example, we know from chapter 7 that the man Amos did his speaking in the north. But on the other hand, if we take a look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1, we know the book of Amos was written in Judah, not in the north. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The words of Amos, the one, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. You don't write in, while you're in the north about the king of Judah and put him first. You put the king of Judah first because you're in the south where his authority is reflected. And so the prominence given to the Judahite king in verse 1 of Amos chapter 1 suggests that the book was actually finally composed and given this title in the land of Judah rather than up north where Amos had ministered. And so it is legitimate to make a distinction between the proclamation and the inscripturation of the prophetic word. This then raises the question of the role of the prophet in the final composition of the book. Roman numeral 3, letter B. Figure 216 raises the question. You have the prophet who was obviously involved, at least in the sense of giving the oracles that are encased within his book and scripturated within the various books of the prophetic corpus. But the big question is, was the prophet the exclusive writer? Did he actually pen every word that we find in the book? Say, in the case of Amos, did Amos the man actually pen every word that you find in the book of Amos? Or did the prophets dictate their oracles and dictate their stories to secretaries? Were there passages, were there oracles and stories and prayers arranged by students under the prophet's supervision? Or were there words compiled from various sources by their students. We have to say that each of these potential uh, scenarios is a possibility for each of the prophetic books. 
at least we know enough from the life of Jeremiah and his relationship to Baruch to know that they used amanuensis or secretaries, that they had students, that they did not necessarily write down every one of the oracles that we have in their books. But it's important for us to take a, an open approach to this and to examine each book for the evidence within each book to see exactly how the book relates to the prophet himself. So as we look at the prophets in literary perspective, we keep in mind that we're dealing in this class with the prophetic material that is actually written down in the Bible and that we must become aware of the various genres that they used and that we must be open as to exactly how prophets themselves relate to the words that are written in their books. Keep in mind, we do believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and so it does never misrepresent the prophets. It actually tells us what the prophets say, said when, the, when it reports to give us the prophetic word. But many times when we read these books, we have to keep in mind that we may be seeing the prophets through the eyes of their students, or at least through the eyes of the prophet at the end of his ministry, rather than during the actual ministry itself. This is what it means to look at the prophets in literary perspective. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.